I should be switched on. Can, can, can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Good, good. I'll keep talking then. Great. It's great to be here. Um, we are uh, in Luke, as we have been, for quite a long journey now. And you'll be interested to know, Joshua just reminded me this morning, that this is the last episode in the series, Walking with Jesus. And you may like to know that we've been walking for as many miles as Olwyn has years. We've walked from Galilee in the north to, and we're just about to enter uh, Jerusalem uh, in the south. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is called the Triumphal Entry. And it's a highly, highly significant and pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. And interestingly, it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. So we'll dive in, in Luke 19, verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise with a loud voice all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Oof, it's got everything, hasn't it? I mean, it's just this incredible scene, absolutely incredible, this joyful procession of people following Jesus. There would be uh, poor people, there might be wealthy people, there would be people who were sick, who'd been healed, there would be people who witnessed People who'd been healed, like there were a whole group of people there who were there simply because Lazarus 
was dead and he's now alive again. So they wanted to tell people, yeah, we were there when Lazarus was raised. So there's all this crowd, this singing, this shouting. The, the scripture says a loud voice. They were shouting, the king, blessed be the king. You know, they were throwing their coats on the road. I mean, it's just a crazy, crazy, crazy scene. Just amazing and shouting, peace in heaven. And it kind of has, the, it just that ring, doesn't it, of that other time that Jono was mentioning about a journey on a donkey and at Jesus' birth when the angel shouted, glory to God and peace on earth. And here they're shouting, peace in heaven, because there is no peace on earth until there is peace in heaven, until we make our peace with God, there will not be peace on earth. But what an incredible picture it is. And I think if ever there was a, a picture in the Bible of what the church could look like, this rag bag, taggle of different people, shouting and praising, making a lot of noise, following Jesus, you know, lots of people criticizing them, you know, who are you, shut up. It's the church, isn't it? So I want to kind of do something a bit different today than I normally do. Normally when I preach, I uh, read the passage then I explain what I think it means, and then I suggest an application. I'm going to do it completely back to front today. So I'm going to start with suggesting an application, and then explaining how what we read can motivate us to do it. Okay? So, the application is pretty obvious to me. Um, and... Just to get you thinking about it, I wonder who you identify with in the passage. What, does, what resonates with you? Um, the thing that caught my eye, and I think it's the thing that catches God's eye, there is one individual person in this passage who gets a mention in all four of the gospel accounts, apart from Jesus, obviously. Any ideas? Yeah, it's the donkey. The donkey is the one person who is mentioned in all four accounts. And Jesus says, just say the Lord has need of it. Our master wants to borrow your donkey, basically. Please. The Lord of lords, the king of kings, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is asking to borrow a donkey. He doesn't need a donkey. He owns the donkey. The Lord has need of it. It's a humble request. Our master would like to borrow your donkey, please. And Mark's gospel adds a little extra uh, bit. Uh, Jesus says, oh, also tell them that you'll bring it back straight away. We get to carry the message, just like the donkey. And our reward <coughs> is joy and laughter. How do we carry the message? Many ways. Just identifying with Jesus. Being seen with Jesus' followers. Keeping on following Jesus when life is hard and we're suffering with personal tragedy. Um, 
making a phone call on a Sunday morning. All of these are ways in which we carry the message, we identify with Jesus. We all have our own stories, but together we can make an incredible impact. Now this story of the triumphal procession resonates, it echoes that passage that we heard read earlier in 2 Corinthians. I'll just remind you again what it says. So Paul has come to Troas, he's found an open door for the message. He's going to bring the message, but he doesn't find Titus there. And that troubles him, because he wants to do it together. He wants to bring the message together. So he goes on. But he then says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through <coughs> us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We get to carry the message. And then he says something very interesting, doesn't he? He says, who is sufficient for these things? Who's up to the job of carrying Jesus, carrying the message. Who's up to the job, hey? Anybody? And a few verses later, he says this. Very, very interesting. He says, you are a letter. You're a message, okay? You're a letter from Christ, written not with ink on paper, but written with the spirit of the living God on your hearts. And then a few verses later he says, we have this treasure, this message about Jesus in jars of clay. Jars of clay. Jars of clay, they're not glamorous. They're a little bit fragile, <clears throat> but they're good enough. They're like the donkey. They're not much to look at, but they get the job done. And they may even have a reputation for not being very clever. It's a donkey. But donkeys are, in fact, quite intelligent, so I understand, and good learners, and very sensitive, apparently, to the emotions of the person sitting on them which I'll come to a little bit later. <clears throat> so we don't have to be experienced. In fact, the thing that made this donkey equipped for the job is that nobody had ever ridden on him before. And that was very, very important to Jesus to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah 500 years before that he would be riding on the colt of a donkey that had never been written, ridden on before. So what I want to do, uh, what I want to draw out of this passage are three things about the nature of Jesus that can inspire us to be messengers, that can inspire us in some way to be a witness, to carry Jesus like the donkey did. Yeah? The first thing is Jesus' humility. Okay? Jesus is a different kind of king. Okay? They're shouting, king? But this is a king like no other king who has ever lived. This king walks a hundred miles 
from Galilee to Jerusalem. And in the last two miles, he rides on a donkey that he borrows from somebody because he doesn't own a donkey. This is a humble servant. The prophecy in Zechariah, and I'll read it to you because it's really interesting. Rejoice greatly. Yeah, they're having a party. It's fantastic. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. Yeah, they're making a great sound, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. And not just a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, a person who carries a message is a messenger, and a messenger is essentially a humble servant. We all know the expression, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just bringing the message. The second thing about the nature of Jesus that can really inspire us to be messengers is his majesty. So, this is a king who, when we look at this story, is in complete control very calm, he's planned the, the journey, every little detail, he's timed his arrival in Jerusalem just in time for the Passover, he tells the disciples exactly where to find a donkey in Bethany, and in Mark's Gospel it adds a little extra detail, he says the donkey will be tied outside the house on the street, so not in a stable. So you're going you're gonna to know it when you see it. So there's all this planning, this, this kingly planning that's going on. And there's a confidence as he rides into Jerusalem. It's interesting that earlier in Luke, how um, the other teachers remark that Jesus' words have had authority. Jesus is majestic, and he's majestic because he has authority. We bring the message from the king, but the message has authority. Paul writes in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the message because it has God's power to save those believe the message has authority it has power peter when he is describing in 1 peter 1 how people become christians how they become born again he says it happens because of a seed that gets planted in them and when it grows they become christians and then he says very specifically that seed is the message that was preached to you. And then the final aspect of Jesus' nature, which I think ins can inspire us to be messengers, is his divinity. It's the one aspect of Jesus' nature which made him both a humble servant and a majestic king. His divinity. He knew things earthly people don't know. Uh, 
he knew where to find the donkey out, tied outside the house on the street. Um, I love John's account of this story. John just says, uh, Jesus found a donkey. <laughs> he just found it. He just said he found a donkey. John was far more interested in the fact that Jesus was riding on the foal of a donkey that was foretold by the prophet Zechariah 500 years before. And he quotes that little passage in his gospel in John 12 that describes the Jewish people returning to their homeland after exile being um, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. I once met a man called Zerubbabel and I said, that's an unusual name. And he said, yeah, I know. He said, my friends just call me Zorro. And I said, oh, that's cool. So Jesus knew things that we, we don't know. And, and he was able to, to show that and show it to us. The other thing he knew was he knew this, what the terrible things that were going to happen to the city of Jerusalem and predicted the destruction that happened to Jerusalem. All signs of his divinity. When I was sharing this story with Miriam, she said, well, the thing that really strikes me is that Jesus calmly rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey that had never been ridden before, uh, with the people shouting loudly and, you know, waving their palm branches and throwing their coats under the donkey's feet. And this donkey just calmly rode into Jerusalem. And she said, I've just Googled how long it takes to train a donkey. And most people say about a year. Donkeys are very intelligent animals, and they learn. But it takes about a year. And Jesus rides calmly into Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been ridden before. That's divinity. Another aspect of God's divinity here, which I really love, and I think it's the thing that drew me to the, the donkey in the passages when the Lord, Jesus said the Lord has need, the need of it. He's just asking politely doesn't need it, he owns it. God doesn't need anything. He owns it all and he gives it all to us. He doesn't even need our worship. When he, when he was criticized and uh, about the way his followers were shouting out king and peace in heaven, he said, well, you know, if they stopped worshipping, the stones would cry out. God doesn't need our worship. But I think for me, the one aspect of this story that displays Jesus' divinity fact that he was God more than anything else is that in the middle of this story of incredible joy and celebration Jesus stopped on the way down the Mount of Olives when as they came over the brow of the hill and the city came into view he stopped and he wept he wept I think only God could
could weep like that over a city. I think an earthly king might say, well, you had your chance and you blew it. Jesus weeps with us in our sorrows. And Jesus is weeping here because he was the one who was bringing peace, but they just couldn't see it. They didn't get it. They rejected him. And I think, for me, I find this really encouraging to know that Jesus feels our pain. He knew, he had the full knowledge that people in Jerusalem were going to suffer. Families and children were going to suffer awfully. He feels our pain and he weeps with us in our suffering. The pain that comes from our blindness, our, not our rejection of Jesus, Jesus sees beyond the tears. This is a story of triumph. This is a story of celebration. And this is the church. This is, this is how sorrow and joy makes sense. It's, it's all mixed together. It's all part of the same thing. It's not, oh, you have to be joyful or you have to be sad. No, no, no. You can be joyful and sad at the same time. And I, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into here. But when Jesus weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem, there's a weeping that is also a joy as well as a grief. Because he knows what he is bringing to that city. He is bringing peace in heaven. By his death on the cross. Jesus sees through the sorrow. His joy triumphs over our sorrow. In anguish and sorrow, Jesus dies on the cross so that we might have joy and peace with God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross for us. Father, I want to thank you that you've chosen us to be your messengers, to bring that message of joy in the midst of grief and sorrow. And I thank you, Jesus, that you had the name Man of Sorrows and that you went to the cross for us. You laid down your life for us that we might have joy. Thank you, Jesus that you weep with us and you will rejoice with us.